and thanks for tuning in to the Path 11 Podcast. I am your host, April Hanna. At the Path 11 Podcast, we are here trying to deliver leading-edge research on consciousness, healing, and metaphysics. And just like you, we are trying to answer the big questions about life. Who are we? Why are we here? And what is our purpose? We hope by listening to our podcast, it will make each day you live on Earth a little easier to understand. And now for today's podcast. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Path 11 podcast. I am very, very excited to speak to my guest today, Martin Wells. He has worked as a psychotherapist in the National Health Service for over 30 years. He also teaches mindfulness to patients and staff. And 10 years ago, he had his own experience of letting go after attending a talk by a French psychiatrist and non-dual mystic. It radically changed the way in which he works now. The experience prompted a profound shift in perspective, allowing Martin to understand non-duality as being at the heart of mindfulness and psychotherapy. Now, as many of you know, I am also a mental health therapist, so this guest is going to bring probably a lot of knowledge um, to my life in this next hour, and I think we're going to have a great conversation. But I wanted to quote a quote that Martin quoted in his book um, that we are going to be talking about today, and I just thought it really captured all of what he wrote, and the book is entitled Stillness Speaks and is really a lot of what we're going to be talking about today. So the quote that he quoted is, The source of all unhappiness is fragmentation, breaking the whole into parts, pitting one against the other, feeling apart and alone. No restoration is required. When it becomes obvious that the fragmentation is erroneous, it loses its power. And that is a quote from Wu Sin. Mm. So Martin, welcome to the Path 11 podcast. Thank you. So I would love to hear a little bit more about this kind of awakening process that you had, that moment when you were sitting in that lecture with mm. that um, with that psychotherapist. And because I know that you were you were doing your own private practice. You had your own clients. Um, you were also practicing meditation. And you noticed that your clients were coming in asking you the same question that you were asking yourself. Mm. Like, who am I? <laughs> yeah. And even though I know I'm all these things, I still don't know who I am. So I know that you were answering that question for yourself. And then you kind of had this aha moment. So I'd yeah. like to learn more about that. Sure. Sure. Uh, by the way, the book's called um, Sitting in the Stillness. Sitting in the Stillness. Yes, I'm oh. sorry. I was reading from another portion, trying to pull it up from memory. Sitting in the Stillness. Stillness Speaks is a lovely book by Eckhart Tolle, of course. Oh, that's right. That, but you know what? You've, you wrote so much. I saw so many parallels yeah, um, from Eckhart Tolle. So there's probably no no mistake there, too. That, <laughs> that, that was what was coming to mind. But yes, Thank my you, apologies. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. The um, yeah, I, I attended a lecture in London uh, at, at the Royal College of Psychiatrists, which is the sort of central body for psychiatrists in in the UK. And the theme of the day was was mindfulness. And the speakers in the morning were were interesting, and they brought their powerpoints and uh, research data, etc. Um, and the guy in the afternoon, um, Jean-Marc Montel, Dr. Jean-Marc Montel from southern France, just stood up. Um, and he didn't have any notes or PowerPoint or, or anything like that. And he simply said, 
in order to be a psychiatrist, you must completely forget you're a psychiatrist. And then he didn't say anything else probably for another two minutes or so. And then he said something equally um, sort of provoking and and clear in, in, from his own perspective. And the, the lecture, the talk, I, I, I'm not even sure I'd call it that now if I look back. It's more of a meditation was 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 incredibly uh, life-changing for me because not only was the content um, really relevant, but the transmission of, of what he was saying uh, in terms of uh, no one no one being there, no one teaching us, no one talking in a sense, was also present. Uh, so there was a profound stillness and silence in 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 this talk which um in a way just changed everything for me i've been meditating for, for years and years in in a in a network um and on my own before that and and that almost that moment um helped me stop any searching for anything else and, and realised that there, there wasn't anything to search for. Everything, everything we need is already is already in our being. It's already available. Yeah, I found that part that you were writing about really interesting because I think also people in our profession, we are seekers, right? We're seekers yeah. of knowledge. We are, um, you know, working with people that we know are bringing us some of their most intimate details. And I think, you know, really good therapists too are always learning, right? They're always the student. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. I have myself too i've always been reading as many self-help books that i refer to my clients right trying to to work on myself and you know there was a section too um i don't have the exact quote but it's kind of like um uh, you know in order to lead the client in so many words like the teacher needs to do the work right the therapist yeah. also needs to do the work yeah but i you know what you wrote really resonated with me because i feel like sometimes we are all walking around whether it's therapist or client feeling a little broken, like, okay, mm -hmm. I need to improve. I need mm -hmm. to fix this. And you really break it down to say, we are already perfect. Yeah. There is nothing that is broken within yeah. us. There is nothing that needs to be undone or to be changed, but we just need to accept who we are yeah. and uh, accept that, that perfect, um, I, I, I guess that perfection of the creator yeah. creating us, but yeah. that concept, I get it right yeah. on a very intellectual level, yeah. <laughs> but the doing and the being of that is, I think I need help in that. I'm sure my listeners need help in that. Yeah. So how do you kind of begin to make that shift from the intellectual knowing and understanding of this concept and then really undoing our stories, yeah. really undoing the judgment that we carry about ourselves and just begin to practice this acceptance of self? Yeah, yeah. It, it's a really important question that, that you ask, I think. And, and um, probably before I answer it, it's, it's worth saying that some people might listening might, might be listening and thinking, well, it does feel like there is something wrong. You know, I, I feel very depressed or anxious or, or even suicidal. And um, uh, it does feel like there's something wrong. And, and what it's important to say at the start is that we're talking about not on the functional level 
because of course on the functional level something is wrong something you know maybe people have lost a job or, or they've lost a partner or they've had a divorce or something a, a major crisis has happened so on that functional level yes something is wrong but but we're not talking about that level we're talking about the level of existence and consciousness and that level as you as you say is there's there's nothing wrong so so to come to your question then then the we can we can put this into two streams really and and each needs the other so one we might call the understanding and the other we might call pra the practice so in the understanding we we do listen to to teachers and read people and and my experience with jean marc was was both that understanding and the practice but but it, but when people have realized that freedom and and then write about it then then what we what we gaining in that understanding because they're often they're often saying things like there's nowhere to go there's there's nothing else to do you don't have to improve yourself so so there's the there's the understanding um, or 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 even more radically there's there's no one really there there's there's just being and presence there's 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 no real persona or personality so that's the understanding. So we we get that from books and teachings and podcasts and and um, for, uh, after hearing Jean Marc, I, I read I read his book. I read his teacher's book, Jean Klein. Uh, there are people like uh, Gangaji in America who who uh, talk in this way. Atoli that you've already mentioned. Jeff Foster in England. There are a number of people, and and of course, some of the the original teachers like Ramana Maharshi in, in India and Sri Nasagadat. There, are, there are, there's lots of stuff out there about the understanding, but the understanding on its own is is only partial because then we have to practice it. And and the practice, um, and as a therapist, you'll 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 know this. Part of, part of that practice is, is what's called a self-inquiry. So what, what is my story? How does my story play out? What are my beliefs about myself? What, what are the relationships that I have that, that flow from that story? How do I think in certain situations? What causes me stress and anxiety? What are my thoughts? So we can inquire into that. And and here's here's the sort of ultimate key is that we're none of that. That's that's not who we are, and that's the essence of of a non-dual perspective in a sense. But in order to know we're not that, we need to be familiar with it. We need to inquire into our own psyches and our own minds. And 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 as we do that, and there's the understanding and the practice. We can we can know from the understanding that that's not who we are, so we both know it and then let it go as as not us. So part of the process, let's say for you, has been when you're sitting with your clients, you're recognizing the stories that they're telling, telling, and yeah. then challenging them to be the observer of the story. Yes. Yes. 
and how they, how maybe they've been engaging in that story or identifying with the story or over identifying or keeping it really wrapped up and held close yeah. tight to them with the way that they live in the world and see if that is helping benefiting or um, teaching them that maybe they don't need that story anymore. Yes, yeah, and, and often people have come in a, in a crisis. So in a way they're saying the story isn't working anymore. It, it, it did work. It served me in, in a number of different ways, but it's not working anymore. And, and, and often when people come in a crisis like that, there's an opportunity to, to, to review that story and how it's held onto and, and, and what it might be like to step into the unknown, step into a storyless way of being. Yeah. And you've also mentioned um, in your book, Sitting in the Stillness, um, that, you know, when you've been in the chair of the therapist, um, you know, for many years, I'm, I'm coming into about 20 now, is that you tend to see a repetition of themes. Yeah. And the two most pronounced, um, maybe three, that I've seen is people constantly coming in for the first session and they're saying something to the effect of, I want to get back to who I am. I've yeah. lost myself. Yeah. I want to find myself. And the other really interesting theme that I see is this disconnect of self-love of mm. people um, just not knowing how to love themselves, how to put themselves quote unquote, first, I guess you can say. Yeah. Um, and then I guess, you know, the third would be exactly what we're talking about. Like who, I don't even know who I am. Who am I? Help yeah. me, you know, remind me who I am. Yeah. Help me to remember who I am and people wanting to feel more like themselves. Yeah. Do you feel like when people are saying that it's a disconnect from the soul, from the soul level? Well, it, it's it's an interesting uh, paradox because, it, in a way, it's a sort of remembering because we couldn't know we were lost uh, if we if we weren't lost. If you understand the paradox, <laughs> yes, yeah. kind of what you said in the book. Like, yeah. you have to realize there is. You have to get on the path to realize there is no path. Yeah, yeah exactly. Uh, um, so, so there's there is a part of us knowing that we're lost. And the part of us that knows that we're not it lost is not lost because there, otherwise there'd be no contrast. So as soon as someone comes to us and says that, then then we we know that they're they're already remembering deeply, and and feeling lost, of course. And all the three, I think that you you um, uh, used as an example were in a, in a way connected because. What's lost in terms of who am I is love because we are love. So when when that's lost, then yeah, then there's a, 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 a an unremembered capacity to love ourselves and love others. So when we when we realise truly what we are, that is love, and we don't need to cultivate self love in that sense, or even strategically put ourselves first. But but more spontaneously, out of being love comes a love for everything, including this being that we inhabit. 
Yeah, I'd like you to go um, a little more in depth, too, about the stories, our right. stories. Right. Um, I guess one of the first times I ever was exposed to this concept was a little bit different was through the teachings of Tony Robbins. And he would often say, uh, change your life, change your story. And he, yeah. you know, teaches about take a look at the story that you've been living, that you've been telling yourself, what you, how you've been carrying your story in the world. And if you want a different life, you have to let that story die and then create. Yeah create the new story. But yeah. I was getting a sense from your book that, um, and correct me if I'm wrong, but it's kind of like, we don't even need to have a story that no. we can walk around without a story. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. Can you explain that a little bit more? Yeah, sure. Um, and, and it's quite common, isn't it? We hear, we hear that, you know, ditch the old story and start a new story, but, but any story, uh, however, however, um, different or we might say positive or creative actually is still a story and and a story has limitations mm. so, so what we're talking about particularly in in, in non-duality is is literally no story and, and 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 that means when we come to any given present moment um there's an there's an openness to that moment there's a there's a uh, there's a, a transparency, an openness, and an intimacy. Because it, let's say we're talking to someone in relationship with someone, there's there's no story impacting on us or them. So there's no expectation. There's no uh, wish for them to be a certain way or for to go a certain way. So so if we've chosen say a positive story, then what, what happens um, when it doesn't seem to go so well? And, 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 and that's why to have no story leaves us with a blank page. And, and, and that blank page, and it, it's, it's not a sort of, it's not a, a sort of, um, a, a sort of nihilistic position or, or just about emptiness, because actually that blank page is an openness to our true nature. And our true nature, as in nature, is phenomenally creative and exquisitely balanced in nature and, and in ourselves and with others. So why would we need to put another story on, on top of that? Because the, the original story, the, the story of creation, if you like, is part of what we are. So really we just open up to, a, to an extraordinary creativity without any story. Yeah. So, so are you also saying too, like with non-duality, because it does feel like living on earth, um, there's a lot of duality, right? What, or what appears to be, yeah. you know, large and yeah. small, um, up and down. Um, I don't know, just, just so many things like, so is part of this um, trying to be non-dualistic in a dualistic world? Well, in in a way, the non-dualistic world doesn't exist other than in our minds. Mm. So, a, a, actually, if you look at nature, there's no such thing as uh, as dualistic. It's it's all perfectly in balance and in harmony. But bring the human mind to it, and the bring the human mind see sees this and that. It sees the raindrop fall on the plant and then therefore the plant is 
is nourished by the raindrop in a sense. But but it, it, in nature, it's not like that. It, it's it's all one and all perfectly unfolding as as it is. It's only the human mind that sees this and that and, and the separateness of things. Like in 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 Taoism, it's called um, ten thousand things. So the mind sees all these things seemingly separate, but not. They're not. Yeah, and you know, in in your book, in the first part one, you give some examples of sessions with your clients, mm. and the clients kind of have their own aha moment, which is really cool to read. And, you know, especially having a therapy background and to watch the way in which you facilitated that in order for them to have that mm. that moment um, within themselves. Mm. So uh, it, it's really, it's a great and, and fun read. But one of the one of the chapters uh, that I really loved was about your coworker, Brian, who was practicing more Buddhism. And uh, that was a miraculous story. And it reminded me of a time, and I don't know if this is Buddhism or not, but it had to have been maybe three years ago. I had read something and felt really inspired. And it was all about dropping expectations, right? Which um, you you wrote so well too, because as a therapist, you sometimes can put a ton of pressure on yourself to feel like you have to have the right answer. Or, you know, my client has an expectation leaving the session to be either inspired or to, you know, have have some bit of knowledge that they're going to walk away with. And sometimes you can mm. feel pressure to deliver that. Yeah. And I was reading this thing about basically, you know, hold showing up to the moment and being completely empty and allowing your body to be this empty vessel. And the more empty you were sitting across from from the person that you were speaking to, like this miraculous healing would happen. And it was very mm. similar to what you described in the chapter when you talked mm. about Brian, about about truly being present, right? Sometimes in therapy too, um, you know, while we're very present, you may have experienced this too, we're kind of listening to the words that aren't being spoken or listening to, yeah, the the words in between words um, and then trying to bring about some reflection. But I remember this one week, I just practiced that. And I was, it felt great, because I was like, okay, Mm -hmm. I have no pressure to say anything brilliant. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I'm just going to be empty. And I'm going to sit across from them and allow them to fill from this emptiness. And I remember laughing because people were getting up and giving me a hug. And they're saying, Oh, my God, that was such a great session. Thank you. (laughs) And I said nothing. Yeah. And, they, and I don't even think that they realized that. And it was really miraculous as for me to observe that and to see that um, sometimes really it's just holding space and being present is what yeah. heals, not yeah. language. Yeah. So can you tell a little bit um, about that story of Brian? Because it yeah. was really wonderful. And I think our audience will get a lot from that. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. So um Brian came uh, to me um, in my National Health Service work in the hospital where I am and asked for a placement. Um, and he was in the middle of his psychotherapy training. But, but for much longer, he'd been a practicing Buddhist, probably 10, 15 years he'd been practicing Buddhism. Um, so uh, he 
what we do is match uh, match the patient up with the with the therapist. So we found Brian, uh, a chap who was, I think, in his mid forties, um, quite suicidal, a very a lot of very self diminishing, self deprecating thoughts, a very harsh judgment um, of himself, and. Um, Usually in supervision, the the, the trainee says, um, well, "I'm not sure what to do about that," or he said this, and I'm not sure what what to say when he says that. And there was none of that from Brian. He he, he basically said, "What a privilege it was to 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 sit with another human being in, in this way and and share some of the pain and the suffering that was was being expressed." And and he would report that sometimes they'd cry together and then they talked about how difficult it was for men to cry and sometimes that was shameful and much more of a, a conversation and, and as you were describing just then, a, a presence really, a deep, a deep listening and an acceptance of what this guy was bringing. And then, then at, at the end, um, we we review our patients three months after the end of the work, which I think was six months or so, maybe a bit longer. Uh, so I, I met up with the patient, and um, he said, at, at first, I, I I didn't know what to make of it because I um, I was expecting some advice and some, some suggestions from a sort of expert, some help. Um, and that that wasn't what happened at all. So I, I went to my care coordinator and said, look, I'm not sure this is working. And fortunately, the care coordinator said, yeah, well, give it a bit longer. You, you, you don't know. Um, see, see what's going to happen. And then, he, and then he said to me, a couple of weeks after that, I was just leaving the session and I had a complete sense that not that my problems had gone away, but they just weren't intense they weren't uh, problems anymore they were they were just more thoughts and 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 ways of uh, of imagining myself um and he said it i haven't had a suicidal thought since since that moment in a sense so then of course i'm curious and i say well what was it that brian said that that that, that you found helpful and then he said well i can't i can't remember a single thing that he said <laughs> Not a word. <laughs> In six months of <laughs> of conversations. <laughs> right. And does that make you wonder? Maybe he didn't. <laughs> well, maybe he didn't. Yeah, that's possible, isn't it? <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. And um, so I'm, I'm wondering, too, how important do you think it is for people to, um, I guess, tell their story? Hmm recognize it mm. and go back into childhood or go back to the traumas and and kind of relive it in a sense yeah. in order to change it like do you feel like that there yeah. has to be this process of acknowledging the story yeah. and how far deep do you you know recommend that people have to go into it or do you not do you just have to you know instruct the client to say okay you know what your story is 
Now let's yes. look at it in a different way. So what are your thoughts yeah. about, because some of the traditional psychotherapy and training, um, you know, I think it's a little bit different now because they're advancing a little bit more into meditation and energy yeah. psychology and the positive psychology. Whereas, you know, some of my trainings like, okay, go back, do the family yeah. tree, get the history, check and see where the trauma is within the childhood. And sometimes it feels that we are just over analyzing and yes. bringing up the past and beating it, you know, like yeah. a dead horse. And it's just like, how is this helpful at this point? Yeah. Agree. If we start from the premise that the, the, the client knows, knows what they need in a sense. So, so what, what they're bringing to us, particularly in those early sessions or it already carries what, what they're needing to face and deal with. So, so for example, in a, in a crisis is carried within it is, is the, the aspects of the story that, that need to be revisited and, and how that's played out in, in the here and now. So one of the other chapters in the book um, uh, called The Invisible Man um, he was never a client of mine, but a, a, a colleague and a supervisee. And, and we, he came because the, the, something that happened in his current work that was um, really ostracizing. So he'd been, he'd been a whistleblower in, in, in the team that he worked in, and there was a real problem that needed to be dealt with. But, but as often happens to whistleblowers, he was rejected by the team and the service. Now, this, incredibly, I'm still amazed by this process because it's so creative. That was an exact replica of, of something that happened in his family. Mm, right. So, so he, brought, um, he brought to his family his father's abuse and no one else could hear it. No one else could hear that his father was abusive. And, and, and of course, they, because they couldn't hear it, they ostracized him. So, so what, what the client often brings us is, is how the story or, or revisiting the story is relevant. Now, like, like you in the early days, I sort of went through the story a bit like sort of a dictionary and, and tried to find out, you know, all, everything about it. But I don't think we need to do that because, because carried in the, in the present moment is how the story is impinging and impacting upon them and how it's getting replicated. So then we can go back, and as I did with, with this guy, and, and helped him think about how that early story was, um, was being replicated. And, and the other thing that I think you're talking about that is so key, there's no point in just going back over the trauma because, because what we're trying to discriminate is the trauma itself and the story around the trauma. As Eckhart Tolle says, really simply, uh, she didn't call me, therefore she doesn't love me anymore. So the, the first bit is the fact, and the second bit is the story. Right. So in, in this guy's history, yes, he was rejected by the family um, and profoundly rejected. Yes, he was abused by his father. 
And, and, and if we were just to revisit that, all that would be would be a re-traumatization. But the potential in the revisiting is that he might see and understand and let go of the story that he told himself about him. And, and classically, kids, instead of saying to themselves, I was rejected, they say, I am a reject. Mm. So the, pers- the story gets personalised into there's something wrong with me. And that's the point of revisiting the story so that that discrimination can be made, so that the fiction can be seen as a fiction. Yeah, uh, you said that beautifully. And it also reminds me, I have two friends that are going through their own type of program um, with another teacher for healing. And she had them write their story. And then she said, now I want you to highlight the facts and then highlight the emotions. Excellent. And then take the emotions out of it, read the story as just the facts. Yeah. You know, and, and to delineate and to see the difference about how much we can personalize and bring the emotion to the story. Yeah. So recognizing the difference between the emotions and the facts of the story. And then part of their empowering was to rewrite the story um, in, in more of an empowering way. But, you know, yeah. we kind of talked about that earlier about, okay, creating a new story, but maybe there doesn't need to be a story. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, you also highlighted too, that many times, you know, when we're talking about trauma, that we had to cope in some ways to get through that, and that those coping mechanisms and the way that we've responded to that could have been very helpful in that moment, at that time, at that age. But what we tend to do is carry that into into more of our present moments, and maybe what worked for us at eight years old, we are still reacting that way at 30-something, and it's not quite working the way that it worked for the eight-year-old. Exactly, exactly, yeah. What what began as a solution to the problem is now the problem itself, yeah. Yeah. Now, maybe we can um, move into another chapter that I really loved was in part two, and I think that this is going to tie us into maybe a little bit of synchronicity. You also had referenced Carl Jung, but the way that people come to find their therapists. Mm. <laughs> I had a client just the other day, um, you know, g- gave me this feedback and she was still sitting in awe. She's like, you know, I went on to psychology today and out of all of the faces, out of all of those pictures, you know, I kept coming back to yours and she mm. teased me. She's like, and you looked young in your picture. And I was thinking, you know, what is this young kid going to tell me? <laughs> and she said, but I just, ha- I just kept coming back, you know, and yeah. then she was kind of recapping how the work that we've done in the past seven years, like it really led her down a totally different spiritual path. She's a different person than she was seven years ago. And she was just like in awe of mm. that one moment of who you choose. Mm. And, and some people I know, and even myself, you know, going through my own therapy, not every therapist is one that you stick with. Right. Yeah. And, yeah. Um, and certain teachers can be there for you in certain periods of time and aren't meant to kind of stay forever in your lives. And some will, yeah. but do you want to talk a little bit about that chapter in the way that clients and therapists kind of come together? Mm, sure. Well, um, 
In, in the chapter, I, I quote um, a system that we had in, in again in the National Health Service where um, a few of us um, ran a course called Therapeutic Engagement. And uh, that, that course um, involved other professionals uh, like nurses, doctors, psychologists, OTs, um, learning about psychotherapy. So we, we offered a little bit of theory and, and regular supervision whilst they saw um, a patient for six months. And we didn't know a great deal about the therapists or the trainees, but we did know quite a bit about the patients because we assessed them quite thoroughly. So we set about trying to match <laughs> these people up. And, um, and we, we tried to be quite sophisticated about it. And, and, uh, and, and after the first year and maybe the second year, we realised that there was something else going on. There was a, there's a matching going on that we weren't part of, that there was going on, as you say, in Jung's terms, synchronistically. There was, it was quite an extraordinary matching going on um, by whatever we call it, the, the universe for, for uh, ease's sake. And uh, time and time again, the, there, were, there was something in the, in the trainee's history that was a mirror of the patient's history. And um, uh, just a couple of examples. One was um, uh, one patient's wife was having an affair or, yes, having an affair, and this was causing him a great deal of distress. So we, um, we allocated this to one of the trainees and the trainees knocks on my colleague's door, a, a fellow supervisor, and says, I'm not, I'm not sure about this matching up because um, in my own life I've been considering having an affair. And we didn't know this, of course, <laughs> um, uh, but, but there it was. Uh, and we encouraged her to stay with it because actually there was something in, for them both in the exploration of, of, of this this dynamic. Another one was um, someone said, I'm so glad you've got uh, red hair because um, the side of my family that I really relate to has red hair and the other lot uh, I have a lot of difficulty. Another one was a, a, um, the issue for the patient was a, a deep envy of her sister and the, um, the trainee um, was the mirror image of that because the trainee in supervision started to say one of my difficulties growing up was how much my sister envied me. Again, not, stuff we just could not have known. <laughs> so in the end, we, uh, about year three, we gave up with all our, our sophisticated <laughs> matching processes and just threw them in the middle of the floor, the, the case <laughs> notes and the name of the, of the trainee. And, and that was just as effective because it, it worked in the same way. Yeah, I, I think it does show and is a great example of maybe the divine intelligence at work. Yeah. 
when I was doing my internship for grad school, my supervisor, who probably had about 20 years in, 20, 25 years in, in the field, um, I remember one of my first sessions, or it was a session early on as an intern, uh, the session ended and I just started to cry, right? It was just either the story, I don't remember exactly, but something got triggered within me, which was probably similar to a story that I had. And so I, of course, you know, you go in, you have your supervision, you process the whole therapy (laughs) and you talk about what gets brought up for you. And my, my supervisor, who I wouldn't consider to be an overly, you know, spiritual person Mm. per se, but he said something to me that always stuck with me. And he said, April, your clients will bring you your issues. So always be a couple of steps ahead of them. (laughs) Yeah. And I was like, huh, that's interesting. And, you know, sure enough, I would say that a lot of life experiences that I've been through, uh, a lot of people that come to me are experiencing that. And I would say I've always tried to be a couple of steps ahead. And, you know, this new concept, I'm really embracing a lot of what you're talking about in this book. And I'm still reading lots of books and holding book clubs. And, (laughs) but, um, you know, this concept of understanding the perfection within and understanding the way that the mind kind of complicates everything and really coming to this oneness is definitely more of the path that I'm on. And I'm really Mm -hmm. excited as I'm kind of evolving myself and evolving my consciousness to be able to hopefully do what you're doing and bringing people to that realization. So Mm -hmm. I just really want to thank you. Um, you know, for your book, it is such a gift. Um, I think it's wonderful. And not just for people who are in the field of therapy, there is a lot to be taken away, you know, from this, but I, you know, you and I just have that background. So this was a really fun conversation. So um, thank you so much, Martin, for coming on our show. And can you let our listeners know where they can get a copy of Sitting in the Stillness? Yes. Um, yeah, I, is, is it called Barnes and Noble, the American um, yes. bookstore? So Barnes and Noble is one place. Uh, Amazon is another. Uh, Goodreads, I think, um, and maybe not Goodreads. No, that's just a site. I think. Um, I'm not sure if you have Waterstones in the in the US. Do you? No, I've never heard of that. No, so it'd be Barn, Barnes and Noble and Amazon. I would have thought if if you're in America. Okay. And do you have a, a website at all? Are you selling them on a website? I don't sell them on a website, but there's stuff on the website, uh, like uh, articles and interviews and things. Yeah, okay. that's called nondualmindfulness.com. Nondualmindfulness.com. Wonderful. All right, Martin. Well, thank you so much for taking time today to speak with me. This was a lot of fun. Um, I, there were a lot of takeaways for me personally, and I thank you for that. Oh, you're welcome. It's been a real pleasure. I've really enjoyed it. Thanks again for listening, everyone. I hope you enjoyed that show. And don't forget to head on over to path11tv.com. Grab your annual membership for $59. Remember, that is 40% off the regular price. So I really want you to take advantage of our launch deal of $59. You get over 75 hours of content that we have on there. So head on over to path11tv.com. Take advantage of the annual membership. All right, guys, take care.